I must tell you at the outset that even after 42 years in front of classrooms, this is not an easy presentation for me to make. It is much easier to speak in front of total strangers or in a pulpit where you're well removed from the front pew than it is to speak to your dear friends and colleagues and fellow believers in Christ. And I pray that the Lord will give me the words that I want to say so that it will be an encouragement to all of you. Some of you have heard this story before, but since it always goes over so well, I have to use it again. So, Lou, if you'll forgive me, I have to tell the story one more time to let you know what it's like to teach in the modern classroom. Retirement from teaching is, in some respects, something of a relief because I was standing in front of my physics class one time after giving a test where the results were rather dismal, and I have some of my former students here, so they may be able to attest to this fact. And in disgust, I said, I want all the dumbbells in this class to get up. And nobody got to their feet, of course, till finally one student in the back row got up and I said, do you mean to say you admit you're a dumbbell? And he said, no, but I hate to see you standing there by yourself. <laughs> <clears throat> so you always have to be careful in the classroom. But maybe a few days after tax time, something like this story would be more appropriate. And I have to give credit to our Pastor Pools at Trinity Lutheran Church in Hicksville for this one. There was a fellow who all his life was hoping he would get a singing telegram. Everyone he talked to in business was telling him how nice it was to be surprised with a singing telegram. And finally, a telegram was delivered to his front door and the boy handed it to him and walked away and he said, wait a minute, stop, stop, come back. I want you to sing this telegram. He said, are you sure you want me to sing? No. Yes, it's not a singing telegram. Sing it anyway. So the fellow opened it up and said, dum, da dum, 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 you are being audited, audited, audited. You are being audited by the IRS. So you don't always want singing telegrams. In many respects, and as Dick mentioned, I've been coming to these breakfasts now for, I think, almost 10 years. And in many respects, what happens here has been more meaningful to me than a church service. Now, I'm not trying to downgrade what happens in church, but as Carl Weiss, who comes with me in the morning here, and I were saying in the car, isn't it what the Christian religion is all about to share with each other, not some kind of liturgy or even politics in the church, but supporting each other and lifting up each other's arms. <coughs> and in telling my own story, such as it is, and it's not always in a person's life that it happens in the proper sequence and in a dramatic fashion like a television show, I was thinking of a way to base it on the Word of God. And the one that came to mind is found in Luke chapter 17, verse 20 where the story is told when the Pharisees asked Jesus when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation, neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is inside you. 
or within you. And if anything would characterize what I have been trying to do in teaching and in other respects in my life, it is to search for the kingdom of God. And I have to give a little background here in order to make that message more meaningful. I was brought up in a little town in Michigan, and you might want to know how small was it? How small, Greg, was the town? It's a little place called Frankenmuth near Detroit, Michigan, and it's so small that if you're driving behind somebody making a right turn or a left turn, you never see them use their blinker lights. I asked one of the natives once, how come you defy the law here and never turn on your lights right or left? He said, we have a special exception in the state police. We don't have to use blinker lights. This town is so small, everybody knows what everybody else is doing, and we know exactly which way they're going to turn. It's a very small town. It's a very small joke, too. <laughs> Frankenmuth does have the distinction, even though it has only a few thousand residents, of having the largest restaurant in the United States. The Bavarian Inn in Frankenmuth serves 10,000 meals a day on a kind of heavy day. It also has the largest Christmas tree ornament factory in the world. It's an 11-acre factory. The reason I mention these two things is because both people, the man who started the restaurant and the one who started the factory, were schoolmates of mine, and I had to do the dumb thing and leave town and look for my fortune elsewhere. But Frankenmuth started not in order to eat or to manufacture Christmas tree ornaments, but to spread the word of God among the Indians of Michigan. It was a mission station. And the church there, St. Lawrence Lutheran, church is one of the largest Lutheran churches in the United States. Over 400 full-time church workers, pastors and teachers, have come from that one congregation. It has been described as a Lutheran boot camp. <laughs> That's from Carl Sagan. <laughs> a Lutheran boot camp, and I thank God for that background. When we were brought up in that congregation, when I was baptized there, and that is how I came to know the Lord, we were told that the way to become a solid Christian is to memorize scriptures, to memorize it in English and German, because we weren't sure at that time which one would become the world language. I was told once that English won out by two votes. I, you may have heard the same story. I don't know where that vote was taken, but if ever German comes back by two votes, and maybe you can hear a little bit of the German in me, I was not uh, familiar with English till I was in the second grade, and then I learned it as a foreign language. And when I looked the passage up that I wanted to use for today's message, I looked it up in German to make sure that it really means what it looks like in English that it means. Some English Bibles say, Lo, the kingdom of God is among you. That's not the correct word at all. The kingdom of God is inside you, and I want to talk a little bit more about that as we go along. I had two God-fearing parents, more devout Christians never walked the earth, and I can remember my mother sitting there in the evening with her knitting and telling me, you're not going to bed until you have recited in English and German the Bible passages for tomorrow. And I think in many respects, what is wrong with American education is that we don't ask the students and children from first grade on to memorize anymore, because if you don't hone your memory when you're young, it's not going to be there in full force for you when you get older. 
In growing up in that community, I remember that one of the high points of the year was Mission Sunday. In fact, the Mission Sunday coming up this August will be our 50th anniversary of our confirmation class, which will be, in fact, a high point in my life, to go back and renew that vow that we made 50 years ago. And Mission Sunday was always a time when we heard foreign missionaries come and tell about their exotic adventures around the world. And that's when the Lord spoke to me and said, that's the kind of thing you ought to be doing yourself. I had no idea what he had in mind, but when you talk about foreign missions, for a person in Michigan, right here, Long Island, is the Far East. When I go back home now for my confirmation class, they look at me in great awe and say, you're way out there in New York among all those foreign influences and so on. Tell us about this foreign mission endeavor. Because in our class of 44, only two left town. They, not because they had to, but because <laughs> only two out of a class of 44 went on to college. In fact, only half went beyond the eighth grade. Why should you go beyond the eighth grade if you already own a farm at that time and have it made in the shade? What do you need with ninth grade? Well, two went on to college, and you're looking at one of them. The other one was the minister. Well, maybe it was three. One decided a little later. And they all went into church work. That's the only kind of college you were encouraged to go to. And another thing that happened at that time was that our teachers told us, and God bless all of them in the Lutheran schools I attended, the, the teachers told us that one thing that you have to be careful about when you go on to school is the study of science. Science was at best considered suspect at that time. In science, they told us you're going to hear people tell you that God isn't really necessary <clears throat> in explaining the universe that pretty soon we will know enough that we can get along without God. That was the beginning of my search for the kingdom of God because somehow God had implanted in me a desire to know more about his universe. I couldn't understand why God would make a universe that when you study it more thoroughly it should lead you away from faith in him. That somehow seemed very inconsistent. How could that be? And so when your parents told you, and it's no different today, that you shouldn't do something, or your teachers tell you not to do something, that is, of course, the first thing you want to try to do. And in my teaching, I've always found that if I want students to read a certain thing, I will tell them, now here's a book that I do not want you to read. It's a very bad book. And especially on page 96, there are things here that are very damaging to you. Please do not read that at all. And then put it in the library, and later you'll find that page 96 is completely worn out. So the same thing was true for teachers telling me that you should not study the universe. So on to a, another boot camp of the church called Concordia College in River Forest to become a teacher, and then to Northwestern University to study science. And to my great surprise, as I went through school, and especially in graduate school, I found that the people who doubted the word of God were not my science professors at all, but rather the people who claimed that they knew more than I did about philosophy. And the unbelievers were the psychology professors, and the philosophy and history and social studies teachers, and the believers were the math and science teachers. And this was a rather strange uh, contradiction, and yet something that turned out to be an eye-opener. My first teaching assignment 
was in the panhandle of Oklahoma, when you become what is, I suppose, the Lutheran counterpart of a Catholic teaching brother, you don't decide where you're going to go. You're told where you're going to go. And on my <coughs> application for a position, I wrote that I would go anywhere in the world except a place where I would have to play the church organ, because try as I might, I was not really an organist. We all had to take a crack at it. We all had to play the piano and organ, but it was a thousand deaths every time I got on that organ bench. And would you know it, that when I opened my call position, here it said, you will go to Alva, Oklahoma. I had no idea where that was. So my fiance, who is now my wife, Margaret, went to an atlas to find out where in the world is Alva, Oklahoma. Well, if you imagine Oklahoma, the panhandle, where it's held together, the main part in the panhandle, that's Alva. Then came the blow. It said, you will also be the musician. You will be in charge of the church choir. You will play the church organ and so on. Well, you do it. You don't ask questions. And I think that was the first real tough lesson I had to learn. If you think you can't do something and you have to do it, well, somehow you're going to muddle through. And I played the church organ, and it was some time later that people found out that the reason I didn't use my feet was not because <coughs> they were just footrests, but because I didn't trust myself playing with hands and feet both. The people didn't know for a whole year afterward that those pedals were more than footrests. But from Oklahoma, the next position was in Racine, Wisconsin, where a new Lutheran high school was being opened. And <clears throat> I was in charge of math and science there. And from Wisconsin then, 25 years ago, as Dick mentioned, to Long Island. And as time went along in the teaching of science, I always had the nagging question, was I really telling my students the truth about the relationship between the universe and the creator? Was the thing that I was telling them out of the textbooks really the way it is, so that when they get out, they will be able to cope with the relationship between God and his creation. And the next gift of God came from a wealthy individual on Long Island who came to me and said, if you want to know whether you're telling people the truth in your classroom, why don't you go through the world and ask people about it? So he set up a bank account for me. He said, take your wife, leave your five kids at home here in Long Island, and travel wherever you want to go to ask scientists about their faith in God. And before it was all over, we had visited <clears throat> a great many countries, and I had enough material to write a book called The God of Science, in which, to my great surprise, I was able to say, that the number of people who believe in the existence of God among the world's famous scientists is no different than it is in the population generally. It is simply not true that science leads a person away from God. It is no different than it is in any other walk of life. The kingdom of God is within you. It is not something that you look for out there and that you are led away from or toward in your line of business. As a matter of fact, I discovered that among the Nobel Prize winners of the world and other notables in today's world of science, the existence of God is taken for granted. 
It is not something <clears throat> that you avoid the way the laws of our land tell schools to do it. We have I, what I consider an idiotic law that we cannot, in our public elementary and high schools, mention the existence of God in a textbook. This is the biggest problem I have in writing my own text, Modern Physics, for the nation's public schools. Why can't I tell the, the students of the nation what the scientists think about God in a field that is so vital? When I was invited not long ago to a conference <clears throat> at Fermilab, the largest atom smasher in the world, one of the speakers got up by the name of Dr. David Schramm, who is considered the greatest cosmologist on Earth today, he said, I stand in great awe of the engineering ability of the Creator. <coughs> now, why didn't somebody get up and say, you can't do that, you're mentioning God in a public convention? When we went to Palo Alto, California shortly after that, to the linear accelerator there at Stanford University, the director, Burton Richter, Nobel Prize winner, got up and said, gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, we're here to learn how God created the universe. In a book that was recently published, Dr. Stephen Hawking, who is considered the greatest scientific mind on Earth today, and perhaps you saw the write-up in Newsday recently, can hardly move. In fact, yesterday I read that even the ability to tap out messages is now disappearing from Hawking. He ends up his book, A Short History of Time, saying that if we once come out with a theory that explains everything, which we will never do, we would then know the mind of God. These people take the existence of God for granted, and this fact is misrepresented in our textbooks. And if there's anything I want to try to contribute to textbook writing in America today, and thank God that the text that I've been privileged to work with for 20 years is by far and away the nation's bestseller in physics, it is that I want to tell the students they shouldn't expect to learn in science all there is about the universe, that they can only learn the things that are achievable through reason, and that beyond that there is a great deal more that they can achieve only through faith in God. Another thing I learned by interviewing people and studying science the last number of years is that Darwinian evolution has come on hard times, that it is a pretty idiotic thing to think <coughs> that life forms have evolved from simple to more complex in a straightforward manner. One world scientist, Fred Hoyle, whom I interviewed at Stony Brook University, said that the idea that there was slime on the earth that then developed DNA molecules is totally idiotic, he said. You can leave the slime sit there for 500 million years, and all you'll have at that time is rancid slime. So that is a rational deduction that evolution in itself is a rather outlandish concept. Another scientist by the name of Walter Bratton, who just recently passed away, the inventor of the transistor, one thing I learned from Dr. Bratton and that I have been telling my students over all these years is that in life there are two kinds of questions. There are questions that begin with the word how, and that's what you study in science. There are questions that begin with the word why. And whenever a question begins with the word why, the only answer is God only knows. And when any student asks a question in your class that says why this or why this, 
always give them 100% credit if they answer you, God only knows. And that's not a bad distinction to make. <clears throat> and if we straighten out this misunderstanding that how and why questions are not conflicting concepts but rather complementary ones, we'll do a great deal to remove the uncertainty that exists in our students' minds. Now, I'm sure some of you last night saw the beautiful conjunction of the Moon and Venus. In fact, Carl and I, when we came here this morning, were talking about that, what a beautiful thing that is, and what a beautiful evidence that is of the existence of God. And the final point I want to make this morning is that the answer to my quest about the kingdom of God turned out to be an, <clears throat> an answer that was not at first immediately evident. There is no such thing <coughs> as proving scientifically that God exists. There is also no way of proving scientifically that God does not exist. It is not a question that's open to rational proof, for which we should be grateful, because every time there is a rational proof of something, somebody will come along and show that the proof was an error, and therefore your faith would always rest on imperfect rational proof. It would only be as good as your mind. But rather, the existence of God <coughs> and our Christian faith <coughs> rests on the evidence of God's presence, not on the proof. Evidence is in the heart. Proof is in the head. And it took me a long time, really, to learn that. <coughs> the beauty of the earth, the uniqueness of the earth, that only on the earth can life exist in all the universe, so far as we know is not a proof that God made it, it is the evidence that God made it. And it took me a few miracles, and as a matter of fact, and some hard knocks in life to really come up with that answer. And if it were not for the prayers of my family and my dear friends, I would not be standing here before you <coughs> telling this story. Because about 20 years ago, I was hospitalized after writing a book for some three years with complete exhaustion. And if ever you talk about a person facing death and saying this is the end, that was certainly it. But God saw fit to answer those prayers and to bring me back. And each time this sort of thing has happened in my life, I discovered that the results are better than what you could have expected and that you were stronger afterward than before because through tribulation, as we'll see in a minute, we learn patience. Ten years ago, I suffered a classic depression. Now, if you don't know what real depression is, when you read about it in a dictionary, it doesn't have much meaning unless you really experience it. When you cannot make a decision, even in, I remember sitting in a restaurant, whether to get a cheeseburger or a regular hamburger. You sit there for the longest time and say, well, on the one hand or on the other hand, that's a symptom of depression. A person should recognize this. I learned that a person is not self-sufficient. You think you're running your own life. You think you know your limits. I found out that you do not know your own limits, that you cannot predict, I can do this much and no more, because all of a sudden you're sitting in the middle of it and you cannot pull yourself out. And I see my dear friend Lou Detloff sitting here, without whose fervent prayers, I don't think that depression would have ended. 
And I remember also that coming up now on July 3rd and 4th, the date of our national independence, I stood there one day in our house suffering from all these symptoms, carrying on under great difficulty, although it was not altogether unknown to the people in my classroom that there was something wrong. I even had students come up and say, what in the world is the matter? You look so depressed. Well, you don't know the half of it. But I stood there and I said, Lord, you tell us in your word that if we ask you fervently, where several are gathered together, that you are in the midst of us, show me your presence. And then came a totally and miraculously evident result. In fact, I looked at the list last night that I made at that time of things that changed dramatically almost instantly. Instead of taking pills to overcome insomnia, instead of watching high blood pressure and all kinds of things, there were some 20 or 25 physical and mental symptoms that immediately disappeared. One of the symptoms of depression also is that you sit there and you cannot do the work you're supposed to do. Stuff piles up on your desk. There are letters to write, you can't do it. All of a sudden, almost immediately, I looked at that stuff and I said, let's get with it. I shall never forget that moment and I pray God that it will not recur and at the same time I thank him for giving me the strength to overcome it and to be even more fruitful than I was before. Each time, as I say, the achievements were greater after the crisis than before. Each time the evidence of God's presence ran completely counter to the proof of his existence. I remember a psychoanalyst telling me at that time, a very high-priced one, you're never going to get out of this. This is going to be with you for life. I went back to him after that miraculous recovery and told him, you know, Doc, I'm not coming back here. He said, yes, you will. I said, you're never going to see me again, and I never have. I don't think he believes it now, but maybe I was able to witness to him in some small way because maybe he needed that help himself. We read in Romans chapter 5, we glory in tribulations also knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given to us. The Holy Spirit lives in our hearts, not in our heads. And I think so often, when in the life of our separate congregations, we use our heads more than we use our hearts, we have a lot of difficulty. I read the other day that 15,000 congregations in this country split over some hassle every year. 5% of all Protestant congregations split up, not theologically in some way, new church bodies, but over a local hassle. How pitiful that is. This is one thing I've appreciated all these years in this gathering. <laughs> We've existed for some 10 years without a division over something that we're doing. Maybe it's because we're not that formal about it, but concentrate on the Holy Spirit living in our hearts. You want to know whether God exists? A student, I will tell him. Then do it by indirection. In geometry, we have
proofs that are direct and indirect. If you cannot prove something directly, then you try to imagine life without that particular theorem. Try to imagine life without God. How ridiculous that would be. How ridiculous to imagine a universe or a human race without God. That is an indirect proof, but it is even more convincing and more full of evidence than to put two and two together. Also, we should avoid the temptation of feeling guilty if we cannot create faith in another person's heart. You see your friends without faith and you say, why can't they see it? Well, if there's anything I've learned in life is that I cannot even create faith in my own heart, much less in somebody else's. It has to be given to me by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But, thanks be to God, he does not refuse faith to anyone who asks for it. And whenever we have it and it is given to us, we should ask for it to be renewed every day. And all the miracles that follow when that happens. I want to close with a little story about that kind of miracle that I heard about in a science classroom. And it happened in a university here in New York State, where a professor, each time when the Thanksgiving vacation came, would tell a story and do a demonstration to show the class that believing in God is ridiculous. He would take a flask in his chemistry class and say, now, if there's anybody here who wants to pray to God that this flask won't break when I drop it, would you start praying, please, on this cement floor? And nobody did. So he dropped it, and there it smashed, and the people went home and said to themselves, well, maybe faith in God is something that is really kind of outmoded. Till one day a freshman student came with devout Christian faith, and in that class when Professor Lee said, is there anyone who'd like to pray that this flask won't break, this freshman said, yes, Professor, I'd like to pray. And he said, isn't that interesting? Now let's all fold our hands while this fellow prays that the laws of science will not work this time and that the flask will not break. So all the student did was to stand up and say, Lord Jesus, I thank you for giving me the opportunity to witness to you, and I pray to you, don't let this flask break. Now talk about putting your faith on a limb. Professor Lee dropped the flask, and it hit his foot and rolled over and did not break. Professor Lee does not give that lecture anymore. <laughs> I thank God this morning for the faith that he has planted in my heart and renews every day. I thank him for a tremendous family, for a wonderful wife, five kids. I thank him for physics, which is the queen of the sciences, of course, from which all other sciences and knowledge emanate. I thank him for eclipses and conjunctions like last night of the moon and of Venus, and of friends like the ones here at Good News. I can hardly wait for the next miracle to occur in my life. And I can't imagine really what it will be like and what God has in store for us in eternity. But I can wait. You know, some people say, oh, Lord, take me out of this veil of tears. And my father used to tell a story that a man in his town always used to pray like this also, take me out of this veil of tears, O Lord, so that it'll be better for me later. So his children were sick and tired of hearing this, and they rigged up his chair with ropes and pulleys so that the next time he prayed this, they started hoisting. So the next night he said, Lord, take me to yourself in heaven. I'm sick and tired of this veil of tears, and his chair started to rise 
And he said, well, Lord, not just now. <laughs> Where is the kingdom of God? Not in Adam's measures, not in a bank, but in our hearts. And there it has to come every day. Like we say, when we say, our Father who art in heaven, let thy kingdom come to each one of us in rich measure every day of our lives. Thank you for this opportunity.